right. It's good to be back together once again and get in God's Word. Uh, we almost made it last week with the short service uh, for the baptism. Within time, we were just a couple minutes over. Got a short sermon uh, today, this week as well, so we're going to go for it. Got 32 minutes, I believe. So we are in the book of Mark. Uh, once again, we continue on. Um, I, I wonder if you've ever had the experience where you felt worthless because you performed poorly. And maybe it was for some activity that you trained for, or maybe a test at school, or maybe something at your job, a project that you were working on. It just didn't pan out the way you thought it would, and, and there was this deep sense of feeling of, of worthlessness. Or I wonder if you've ever been in a group and you've avoided talking because you don't want to say something foolish and you don't want people to think that uh, you're not as smart as you want them to think. Or I've wondered if you've ever had the feeling of uh, being downcast because someone else was chosen over you. Maybe that was for advice, or maybe that was for a job, or promotion, but someone else was chosen over you and you felt downcast because of that. Or maybe you've had the experience where you felt anxious because of you're wondering how people think of you. Maybe it's about your body image, or your personality, your strengths, and you feel anxious because it doesn't feel like people view you in a good light. Or maybe you've felt frustrated before because you're not being recognized for the accomplishments that you're making, but they're not, people aren't recognizing that. Or maybe you felt insignificant because you haven't achieved a life goal that you have had, to, to reach a certain social status or something in a relationship, and you, you have, still haven't reached what you want to reach, and it's just making you feel insignificant. I trust we can all find ourselves in one or multiple uh, of those things, and uh, what that typically is uh, uh, a result of is, is having a wrong view of what true greatness actually is. You see, we all have deep within us this desire to be great, this desire for our lives to, to, to count, to matter, for this desire for our lives to transcend the ordinary. Now, part of the reason we have that is we're taught that from young age, and we, we tell kids at a very young age, you, you can be great and you can do great things. And so this is pumped into us from a very young age that we can be great. And so we want greatness. And at the same time, this is part of our DNA. This is actually the way God has made us. God has made us to pursue greatness. Right? He, he put Adam and Eve in the garden to fill the earth and subdue it. And do everything to the glory of God. So we were made to actually want to achieve greatness. The problem is, is that we distort what greatness actually is. We tend to look at externals, and we, we look at things that uh, are indicators of greatness, maybe position, or power, or uh, applause, or accomplishments, or influence. And those are the things we look to to demonstrate what true greatness is. And when we do that, we experience those negative feelings because we can never reach it. And even if we do reach it, it's gone tomorrow. 
In our passage today, what Jesus is trying to train the disciples is to release them from that, that wrong view of greatness, because that will enslave us. It will never satisfy us, and he wants to free us to actually pursue true greatness so we will experience deep joy in our hearts. Because God does want us to pursue greatness. It's a matter of what true greatness is, and that's what Jesus wants to help us see so that we're pursuing true greatness as God sees it. So we'll get into the passage here, verse 30 again. Uh, they went on from there. Remember, they, they just came down off the mountain, the transfiguration. They came down from the mountain, and there was that demon-possessed boy, and they couldn't cast him out, and Jesus cast out the, the, the demon out of the boy and was instructing them that, uh, that, that they are to be utterly dependent upon God in every matter. Right? And so now it's, they're, they're making their way again to Jerusalem, verse 30. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, because he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and were afraid to ask him. We'll pause there. You may notice, uh, even in some of your Bibles probably, the, the header uh, might even have this word again. Jesus foretell, mine says, Jesus again foretells his death and resurrection. Right, so this is, this is the second time in the book uh, that Jesus is talking to the whole discipleship, uh, disciple team of disciples, right? He did say it uh, on the Mount of Transfiguration or alluded to it, but that was just the three. This is the second time in the book uh, that he tells them again that he's going to Jerusalem and he's going to be killed. Right? The first time was chapter 8, verse 31. And then if you look at chapter 10, verse 33, he'll do it again. So in this three-chapter three section where Jesus is trying to instruct the disciples, what does it look like that Jesus is the Christ? What is it going to look like for you as you follow Christ? The cross keeps getting inserted in there. So this, this is the second time he's telling them about the crucifixion to come. So the question we should be asking then is, well, why does he do that? Why, why does he keep inserting this? He, he easily could have just said, at one point, just said, hey, Jesus, as he went along to Jerusalem, multiple times he told his disciples about the crucifixion to come. So even just rhetorically, in terms of the narr telling the narrative, why does he keep inserting this? Because it's clearly purposeful. I, we can give multiple reasons. The two that I think are probably most helpful. Uh, one, there is this sense of him predicting uh, his crucifixion. Uh, many go to that. The, the idea here is, is that the crucifixion wasn't plan B, or it wasn't something that just kind of happened. Or the waves of, Jesus was sort of a victim of the waves of history and the, the kind of the chaos that happened in Jerusalem. Or we saw, you might say, that Jesus, we saw Jesus walking on the water a couple uh, chapters ago. Now we, it's, metaphorically, Jesus is, is not um, a victim of the waves of history. He's walking on the waters of history, right, on, the, on top of the waves. He's planned it. He's the one that calls the shots. Satan didn't win in Jerusalem. Rome didn't win in Jerusalem. The Jewish leaders didn't win at the cross. This was God's plan all along, Right? And so Jesus helping the disciples see all the way along, this is exactly as planned. There is no plan B. This is plan A, which is going to be very helpful for the disciples and helpful for the first audience and supposed to be helpful for God's people through all the ages because oftentimes we get into hard situations, these cross-bearing 
uh, situations where life is extremely hard and we think this must be God's plan B. But it's help God helping us see, no, God is the one directing history. He's with us, this is part of the plan, and he's growing us in grace through the hardship, not to avoid it, but to go right through it. So this is a prediction aspect. But second, um, which I th- actually think is probably even more prominent, uh, is this idea to, to permeate the pattern of the cross into all the instruction. So for the next chapter and a half, Jesus is going to particularly give instruction to the disciples of what it looks like, the way of Christ, what it looks like in terms of how you view yourself. How do you view yourself in a group? How do you view your group compared to other groups? How do you view marriage and divorce? How do you view your possessions? So he's going to teach them all these things in this chapter and a half, but into it is the cross. Because the idea is the cross is not separate, the gospel is not separate from all these categories. It's meant to go in and permeate them. So I have an object lesson here. This is especially for the kids. You can replicate this one at home and maybe tell your parents about what this this one means, okay? So here's a nice jar of water, and we have a little bit of food coloring here, right? You take two, two drops of food coloring, and what happens to the water? It begins to totally take on the actual color of the food coloring, right? It actually takes the shape of it in, in that sense, the, the very color. So now no longer do you have just clear water. And they're no longer separate. The idea is the food coloring goes in and permeates all the way through the water, and the water is now green. It looks just like the food coloring. And so the idea here, what I think is going on, is Jesus keeps inserting this message, is that all the instruction you're going to receive has to be viewed with the gospel or the the cross coming right into it. It's seen right through it. As someone has coined it, that, that all of life for the Christian is meant to be a cruciform living. That is to say that, that the, the, the cross not only saves us, it shapes us. That we are to be shaped into the very image of the cross. So all topics that we think through of life are cross-shaped. It's cruciformed. We're formed into the cross. Uh, so that meaning our relationship with God is utterly fully dependent and vulnerable before God. Internally, it's who we think we are, our identity. It's who other people are, how we view other people and we're under them. It's how we view the world and our possessions and what our schedules and resources, what what we do with those. Everything is meant to be shaped by the cross. And so Jesus and Mark keep coming right back to it in the middle of this instruction. Now the other thing that you you should ask as as you read Various books like Ecclesiastes does this, where you kind of have these similar phrases come up all the way throughout the book, but they're a little bit different, and you want to pay attention to what, what's different of it being spoken this time. So what is unique about this time that Jesus is sharing about the cross? And you see it right there uh, at the beginning of his statement in verse 31. The Son of Man, remember that's the king, the one who's going to rule over all nations, the Son of Man is going to be delivered, and that's the That's the unique piece here. He's going to be delivered into the hands of men. And they will kill him. It's this delivery piece that is new to this this message. Now, you would think, as the disciples are hearing that, there's a question in their mind. 
the Son of Man is going to be delivered over to the hands of men, well, who's going to deliver the Son of Man? Who's going to do that? Now, you would think that that question is something, maybe as they walk to Jerusalem, that's what they're going to talk about that. They're going to be asking. When he said he's going to be delivered, who's going to deliver him? Well, that's not what they were talking about. As the story continues, verse 33, And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, Jesus asked the disciples, So what, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. Because on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. In other words, they had just been caught red-handed in terms of what they were talking about. I don't know if you have this experience. I have this at home sometimes. Uh, uh, I, have, I love granola, uh, and homemade granola. And we'll have it oftentimes on top of our refrigerator. And uh, sometimes I'll, you know, everyone's in the dining room. There's a little wall that guards the kitchen. And I'll open up, reach up, open it up quietly, close it, put some in my mouth. But evidently, it was quiet to me, I thought, but it, not to the other room. And someone, oftentimes one of my girls, uh, they'll say, what you doing, Dad? <laughs> At which point... I stand there and <laughs> I don't say anything as if I'm a two or three year old and I can like hide. No, I'm not in here because I've just been busted, right? And I don't have a response. And this is what happens to the disciples. They're like, oh man. After he's just told us he's headed to Jerusalem, somebody's going to deliver him into the hands of men. He's going to be killed and raised from the, on the third day. We're having an argument about who among us is the best one. And they've been busted. And you, you might wonder, how in the world do they have that conversation after Jesus has just, just told him that? I don't know how it happened. I mean, I can imagine it. Uh, I mean, perhaps, perhaps, uh, again, I don't know. I don't have no special insight here. But perhaps uh, one of the nine who was not up on the mountain said something to one of the three and said, hey, well, you know, what, what happened on the mountain? And one of one of one of my aunts said, "Oh, we're not supposed to tell you." Oh, what you think you're that great? No, well, Jesus told us not to not to, to to say anything about this. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. Oh, ooh, Mr. Special over here. I got to go up in the mountain. Well, I mean, after all, he did ask me to go up in the mountain. I guess he didn't ask you. I don't know why. What do you what do you think you're better than me? Well, I mean, he did clearly. He clearly asked three of us to go up. I, you can think about that what you want. I mean, you, you know, and. I don't know how that went, but you can easily see a conversation like that happen, not because I know these guys, but because I know my own heart. I know how quick I could be sitting in a service and feeling God's speaking, and I can go into another room, and quickly I start comparing myself to other people. I mean, how, how, how much do you have to work at learning how to compare yourself to people? It happens instantly. You walk in, and we all have different categories. We're judging people by their intellect or maybe by their fashion or social status or the way they stand, the way they smile, the way they laugh, their personality. I mean, you name it, we'll come up with a category. We're always trying to, how do I one-up this person? How do I rank in this group? I mean, it happens instantaneously for us. And I know how deeply I want to be approved by other people. 
I know how easy it is to insert a quick word of maybe something I did, or maybe you just want to one-up, or if somebody's telling me a story, I want to just let them know I did the same thing. You know, I, I want their approval as well. I know how easy it is to avoid speaking in a group because I, I don't want people to lessen their view of me. You know what I mean? Like in a group, typically you're one of, one of two people often. You either sometimes want to talk because you are tr actively trying to increase people's view of you or you don't want to talk because you don't want to decrease people's view of you. Right? But both of us, no matter where you are, we tend to want people's view of us to be high. And so it's depending on who you're around sometimes. If you're dealing it with a group that's much more intellectually strong than you, then I'm going to be quiet because I don't want to shrink their view of me. Right? And all of this is all me focused. It's all me. Where do I rank? How do I put myself on top? How do I get to the top of the ladder? So what does Jesus do? Uh, verse 35, he sits down. This would be uh, characteristic of the teacher. Sits down, brings the pupils down to have a seat, and he begins to teach. He sat down, he called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Now, isn't it interesting here? Jesus does not say, guys, you, you want to be great, and that's totally wrong. You should not want to be great. That's not what he's saying. He's actually not saying the desire to be great is wrong. It's just the way they're desiring greatness is wrong. So he's redirecting, he's reorienting uh, what true greatness is here, right? He says, if you want to be first, well, here's how to do it. If you want to be great, here's how to achieve it. This is what true greatness is. Now he defines it for us. Be last and be servant. Notice he doesn't say be second. He doesn't say be, be third. He says be totally last. So your, your opinions are not needed above everyone else. You can put your opinions on the bottom. Or your desires should be below everyone else. Last place. I don't like being last place. Then he says servant. If last isn't hard enough, he says servant. I want you to be a servant. A servant is one, right, that attends to the needs and to the desires of someone else. And not just some, any someone, but someone superior. He says, I want you to be a servant. Lay yourself down underneath everyone. So you walk into a room and you should view yourself as the lowliest of people here. Not comparing yourself, not trying to put yourself up, but down. And if that's not offensive enough to your soul, look at that little phrase after last and after servant. Last of all. Servant of all. There's absolutely no task beneath you. 
He doesn't say, be a servant to those that you want to be a servant to, or be a servant to those who are easy to be a servant to, or be a servant to those who have the same personality as you. He says, be a servant to everyone, whether you want to or not, whether they are strong or weak, whether they are like you or not like you. Be last of all, servant of all. Because his point here is that true greatness, as defined by God, is serving others to the glory of God. Others. Is that the others focus? We so quickly have a me focus. Jesus says it's others focus. Totally under everyone. True greatness, then, is serving other people as God defines it. Which means greatness is not defined, it's not indicated by power or by position, or by accomplishments, or applause of people, or influence. Those, those may not be wrong, but they are not the right indicator for who is truly great. How does that land on your soul? I, I tell you what, on, on a good measure, it feels like a Blast of cold air in a January morning when I open up that door. <sighs> to lay down your life for everyone. I, I, do, I, want to, I want to be someone that gets served, not one that has to serve other people. I want to have power so at least I can have a say. I want other people to consider my desires. I don't want my desires to be put to the bottom. I like my opinions. That's why I have them. I like my desires. That's why I have them. So I want them to be to the forefront. And I want to make sure everybody else hears the message of serving others so that they serve me. So I don't like it being confronted with this idea that true greatness is about serving other people. Because that doesn't feel like that to me. It doesn't feel like greatness. On the other side, I find this to be a glorious reality. It's because, because we all do have that innate sense that we want to achieve greatness. And if this text is right, if what Jesus is saying is right, is that true greatness is not defined or indicated by all these external factors. <clears throat> right? It's not by, by being at the top of the ladder. That doesn't, that doesn't indicate true greatness. It's not by having a great education. It's not by coming from a good family background. It's not by having a lot of wealth. It's not by having the, the, the uh, right job. It's not by having a certain level of beauty or personality or intellect or timeliness or organization or titles or cars. None of those things are the indicator for greatness. And that's great news. Because you go through that list, and some of us don't come from that. And yet we can still achieve greatness, as God defines it. We can still pursue that, which our souls want and long for, we were made to do, right? So I, I, like for myself, I, I, don't have, I don't come from good education. If I remember correctly, I had a 2.0 in, in uh, high school. I mean, I wouldn't consider that great. I think I had a 2.3 in uh, my undergraduate, and that took me six years to get I mean, that's pathetic. 
So I, I don't come from a great family back background. It was quite broken and very sad. I don't have a great intellect. And yet this passage, Jesus says, I can still pursue greatness as God defines it because all those external things don't matter. Now, they're not wrong. They, they can be very good and, and serve other people, and they can be good for, for whatever, you know, your family or for life in this community. And that's, that's a good thing. But we don't pursue those external things as if those will achieve greatness. Greatness, Jesus says, is laying your life down, serving other people, being last. And that, in the eyes of God, is true greatness. Which means the CEO of a company and the custodian of the same company can both be achieving greatness in God's eyes. Or the owner of a restaurant and the cook of the restaurant can both be achieving greatness in God's eyes. Because it's not based on position or power. It's based on a position of the heart, a posture of the heart, a before God, laying your life down before other people. And both can do that. And then Jesus gives an illustration here, uh, verse 36. He, he then takes a child and puts the, puts the child in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. So it's been well attested to that uh, in the ancient days, uh, children, uh, though in, in scripture, children are a great blessing. In the, in the culture, children were not always thought to be this, this great, uh, you know, the whole family bends to their wills and desires the way we oftentimes do. We cherish little kids and the whole family orients around the kids sometimes. Uh, not so in, in the ancient days. Uh, children, uh, many didn't actually live through, uh, you reached the age of puberty, many, there was a very high infant death uh, rate. And so the children, in, in some sense, were considered more of a, not, you wouldn't, wouldn't say necessarily burden, but it's, they didn't really give back, especially when they're, they're very young like this, right? And so uh, the family's got to do a lot of work in order to survive, but children, they're, they're not there yet. And so the children, they need to fit in with the family. They need to kind of orient themselves around uh, the program, not the, not the family orients around the, the child. And so Jesus here, when he grabs the child, uh, grabs a potent illustration for their day of someone that somebody wouldn't think that you lay down your life and serve. So in our day, Jesus would probably grab some, some other person that we, in our eyes, think, oh, even that person? Like, be a servant to that person? Lay myself under them? I don't know about that. And Jesus says that, even these people you shall serve. And you know, you know anyone in your life that you could look at and say, now that's an example of someone that serves, and even though oftentimes it's not even recognized. And that is glorifying to God. <clears throat> Perhaps in your own household you have someone like that. <clears throat> I know there's someone in our household that that will oftentimes clean under the stove, behind the stove, dust the bookshelves, you know, clean all these things around the house that most of the time, the rest of us don't ever see. It goes un unrecognized, unthanked most of the time. In fact, uh, the first time I actually realized just how much uh, Danica does around our house, we were in England, <clears throat> We had gone with another couple on this trip 
uh, and this like mission trip, and we were staying with this uh, widow named Prue. And Prue, every morning, would come out uh, to the living room where Danik and I and this other couple we were with would be sitting, uh, getting ready for the day, and she would be holding some clothes. And she'd say, did somebody leave these in the bathroom? And <laughs> there's my English accent that comes out. <laughs> Was that good? <laughs> All right, I won't do the accent again. <laughs> and it's like, oh, yeah, those are mine again. So this is day after day, even one day, it's even like she's holding one of my undergarments. Did somebody leave these? And it's like, oh, man. And, and all of a sudden, near the end of the trip, Danica goes, and I was like, because oh, I said something, I was like, man, I do, that. I do that a lot. And she was like, oh, yeah, Dan does that all the time. I was like, what? She's like, yeah, you do that almost every day. And I was you never told, this is, we've been married for years now. You never told me? Well, no, I just pick them and I, you know, whatever. You just take, and I just thought, man, how much she does this serves. And I, I never thank her because I don't even see it. And, and true greatness, as God defines it, serving others oftentimes goes totally unrecognized. And that's also one of the reasons why it's so hard. Because we want the recognition for what we've, what we've just done. But true greatness, truly being a servant, will oftentimes go unthanked, unrecognized. I think around Crossway here, I, th- I think uh, right away, I think a, a Joby and Sam uh, two elders who give a lot of time, a lot of emotional energy to, to care for the church, uh, much, much of which um, my eyes don't see either, but many, much of which uh, the congregation never sees and never is aware of. Uh, but there is one audience member that sees it all. I think of the, uh, of the deacons through the years. We've, God has uh, graced us with many wonderful uh, deacons. The word deacon actually is, means servant. Uh, that, that have saved, served faithfully this church uh, through the years. Uh, and right now we have uh, Michael, Pete, Abby, Nadia, Siobhan, Annie, and Katie. And especially at a time, uh, a time like this where we're doing the serving schedule, or I shouldn't say we, uh, they are doing the serving schedule. I get no credit for that at all. And uh, that, that takes time, energy, conversations, and working through it and kind of putting the plans on the board and trying to, trying to encourage people. That, that takes a lot of time. Uh, and that, that's, that's incredible service. And so uh, thank you for all of you who serve like that. That's an incredible blessing to us. But oftentimes it goes totally unrecognized, totally unthanked. But we thank you for uh, that service. So what do we do? What do we do today? What do we do for this week? Do we go out and serve? Well, yes, we, we should. We should go seek to be last of all, servant of all. But we have to see the motivation. Because if we don't get the motivation right, we're going to be very frustrated. Because when we're not thanked, when it doesn't, we don't get reciprocal treatment, we will quickly run dry and frustrated that we are serving, we're last, but they're not recognizing it, and we'll quickly run out of steam. So it's important to see the motivation that Jesus gives here. Look at verse 37. He says, whoever receives one such child in my name, and here it is, receives me. And whoever receives me, receives not me, but him who sent me. This is Jesus giving a soul-satisfying purpose in serving other people, and laying down your life and being a true servant towards other people. This is, this is meant to then transform the mundane these mundane activities, depending on who you're serving, can be glorious to the soul. 
So for example, let's say uh, you were someone that you, your job was to clean floors or to cook or to wash windows. No, there's nothing wrong with those jobs at all. Uh, but in our culture, those typically are not jobs that are thought to be really highly esteemed. So you're just cleaning the floors, you're cooking, you're washing windows. But what if you were cleaning the windows of the President of the United States or someone who has really high influence and high power that you really respect and honor? Or cleaning their floors. Suddenly, something that is mundane, cleaning the floors or cutting their lawn, is glorious. And it fills you with joy because of the person you're serving. It's not the activity itself, but it's who's behind it, who you're actually serving, and who's receiving your service. And what Jesus is trying to get at, as you serve, horizontally it may not be recognized at all, but there's one set of eyes that is watching, that delights in it. And when you do that, God receives it as service unto him, which is glorious. So what, what means then is that as Jesus is calling us to true greatness in serving. He's not calling us to drudgery. It's an invitation to true joy. If you want true joy, it's in being what you were made to do, which is to serve God, in horizontally serving other people to the glory of God. And we're actually free. The other way, the way the world teaches in pursuing greatness and all these other external things will enslave us. We'll never find true joy in that. But if we pursue true greatness, laying down our lives for other people, to the glory of God, it goes straight up to him, and we find joy for our souls. And with that, we'll move towards the Lord's Supper uh, and also think on another motivation uh, for pursuing true greatness and serving other people. Because the Lord's Supper reminds us of the new covenant that Christ inaugurated with his blood, whereby we are told we have new hearts and the Holy Spirit to empower us to live in the good of the commands that God gives us. So if you're here this morning and you're a follower of Jesus, you worship him as the Christ, and you're striving to walk in repentant faith uh, under him, we invite you to join us. If you're here this morning and you are not a follower of Christ or you're not walking in repentant faith, then we ask you not to partake of the Lord's Supper.